Welcome friends and listeners of Radio Maria Australia. Our smart loving conversation today is about how to manage our differences. But before we get into it, we want to introduce our special guest, Byron Farola. Byron is husband of Francine and co-founder of Smart Loving. And Byron and Francine have been married for 34 years and have over three decades of experience in marriage and family ministry. Residing in Sydney, Australia, they have five adult children and three grandchildren. And Byron has a PhD in biochemistry and works as a consultant. Welcome, Byron. Great to be here. Finally, I get to actually hang out with you too. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Byron, one of the first things we do in SL Conversations is to ask, how was your walk with the Lord these past days? Well, the beginning of the week, I was sick as a dog in a hotel room in Melbourne. So that was a conversation with God, like, what the heck? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Where did this fit into my plan? So that's asked me to the question is maybe what's his plan? But actually, I've started reading G.K. Chesterton's book on Thomas Aquinas. And probably like a lot of people we've heard of and we know of and it's a familiar name, etc. But I've actually never, you know, sort of actually explored his life. Uh, Chesterton, he's got a lovely reference to him as, a, as the dumb ox. I'm actually listening to it as an audio book while I walk or exercise. And I've listened to the first chapter three times now because it's so rich. Wow. So, it's, um, so I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through it. This is five hours of listening, but I might be still listening to it this time next year. <laughs> yeah. I love books like that. What platform are you listening to it on? Uh, it's, an, it's on an Audible platform. Audible. Yeah, great. And what about you, Fran? I had a really lovely this moment with the Lord about a week ago I was driving over to see the grandchildren I, I flicked on the praise you go which is a sort of an audio reflection takes about 10 minutes or so and just had a really lovely encounter it led me not completely unexpectedly to just recalling uh, my early days when I first really encountered the Lord for the for the very first time and took took that step you know you kind of take that step take ownership of your faith it stops being a parent's faith and I just realized that Byron had been so instrumental in giving me that gift and I was filled with gratitude so it's kind of nice you're here. My past week walk with the Lord at the current time of recording it's currently the season of Advent so I always like to open up a book called Life of Christ by Fulton Sheen that's on our bookshelf and one line has just stood out to me and stuck with me all of Advent and it says this no one would have ever suspected that God coming to this earth would ever be so helpless and this is precisely why so many miss him divinity is always where one least expects to find it so that just really like you were saying Byron was so rich I just had to reflect on it for a couple of days divinity is always where one least expects to find it so I'm just trying to be aware that in places or situations where I'm not expecting to find God is exactly where we can find him that's great so shall we dive into our topic managing differences what I want to do first is just unpack a little bit of some of the secular research on understanding and The first point is really just about normalising our differences, which can sometimes manifest into disagreements. Differences are all pretty normal. We're male and female. We've got different upbringings, sometimes different ethnicity, different socioeconomic backgrounds, personality and so on. These differences then manifest in our preferences, our biases, assumptions and expectations. And naturally talking about them can lead sometimes to disagreements or escalate to an argument if we don't know how to manage them very well. One of the important differences I think that we've navigated as a couple is actually a differences in the way that we make decisions. Um, I come from a family where it's a very orderly kind of thoughtful process and lock it in and get it done and move on, whereas from Byron's family, 
it's much more the keep your options. And so we often run into difficulty or tension when we're just trying to make a decision, an everyday decision. What about you? I think I'm in another area where we, I think we've experienced differences is in parenting. There's no manual for parenting. There's lots of books written on it, but they're not books written for us as individuals. And so we came to parenting with all sorts of expectations and you know, ideas of what would be right, or we, we just formed our own, our own views along the way. So we had some of our best disagreements or, frankly, arguments mm-hmm. at two o'clock in the morning on the upstairs landing, trying to work out how to deal with a, a non-sleeping two-year-old or six-month-old baby when neither of us had had any sleep. So the differences spilled out pretty quickly. And, and when you're tired or under stress, you can lose your normal sense tolerance and and just you know common sense of how to deal with the difference and and rapidly find yourself in a difficult spot so i think that's that's an area i think we sort of experience a lot of differences yeah well for joe and i joseph being born and raised in usa there was obviously cultural differences me being raised in sydney australia and as well personality differences i think i'd probably fall into the more laid-back australian way of life no worries like go with the flow if the schedule changes doesn't really throw me for a tizzy Whereas Joe seems to love to stick to a plan and a schedule. And I think, you know, coming from a a country with 330 something million people versus a country with 28 million, yeah, you have to be organised with your schedule and getting on the road if there's loads of traffic in a city that you live in. So things like that, cultural differences, but also personality differences too, which differences can sometimes make us stronger as well. So it did lead us to some disagreements and (laughs) um, values-based decision-making, which we'll discuss further. It's pretty common. We all have differences and we probably all have a history of some measure of disagreement and perhaps even serious conflict around our differences. But what we'd like to explore going forward is just how we can talk about those differences while maintaining respect and without getting overly emotional. And I think one of the most helpful things for me has been to cultivate a mindset of curiosity. If I'm kind of approached Byron with curiosity, it helps diffuse my defensiveness and it opens me to just being more receptive to learning about him and understanding what's going on for him and we can often do this I think we did this much better when we were dating I think you do it much more easily when you're dating because you're naturally just trying to find out about the other person Mm -hmm. and you sort of have a a natural openness to the differences as well like it's oh look you know you, you like you know you like your eggs that way I like my eggs this way isn't that interesting you know, the problem is when you've been married for 20 years, it's like, what the heck? I like my eggs this way. What don't you understand? <laughs> you know, and, and so, so the, the same things, we, we were much more curious about each other. And that curiosity is really helpful. Differences occur every day, frankly, if we actually look for them. There's all sorts of things, you know, our values are different and they play out there. The question we should ask ourselves is why? You know, what does that tell us about the other person? Why do they, why do they think that way and and rather than just sort of standing in the difference try to understand what's behind it because that's where the richness lies and so a couple of things that we found helpful or me particularly has been just taking a little bit of disciplined time for personal reflection and this helps me then to communicate more clearly it also helps me understand and own my preferences and also why they are important to me so some of the benefits are it reduces the danger of kind of unacknowledged subconscious desires, just sort of ambushing the conversation. Sometimes it feels like we just get ambushed where we can be having what seems like a reasonable conversation about some difference of opinion, but all of a sudden it's just like triggered. And that's often that subconscious desire that's peaking up and put butting heads. It also helps us 
I guess, identify some internal conflicts where there can be some cognitive dissonance that we might not be aware of in ourselves and also identify the family of origin influences. And we've already referenced some of those around our upbringing, those backgrounds, whether it's in an ethnic context or religious, it's really transmitted to us through our family of origin. So that's always a really rich place. There's different ways people naturally like or can find to do that. Sometimes they sit there and they just think. Journaling is also another powerful tool. The, the form of actually writing slows your thought patterns down and also keeps you on track, the physical nature of it. So quite often journaling is a, is a great tool, just writing down why am I thinking this way, why am I reacting this way, what, do I, what questions do I have for the other person. It's really helpful. Professionally, I've, I've learned to do that from a communications point of view. I often say to my people, if we can't write it down, we don't know how to tell people what we're trying to say. Write it down first. You don't have to read it to people, but when you've written it down and you've got it clear, then you can have a really good conversation. Whereas when you're trying to make it up and think and talk at the same time, it usually ends in a mess. Yeah. And of course, naturally, inviting the Holy Spirit to lead us in that space is really important. One of the activities that we give to our couples in our courses, particularly the Engage course, is a little activity called Ideals and Priorities. And to make it really concrete, what we usually do is give them a sort of very specific framework. So the first part of it is to reflect on their ideals. So we'll say to them, imagine you've got one year left to live. Make a list of all the things that you'd want to do or how you'd want to be spending your time in that precious one year. Or, you know, think about what you want on your obituary. How do you want to be remembered? And that really can help, gives them a sort of really sharp focus. And I know for me, I probably wouldn't be, things I have on my bucket list, like learning how to do pottery, I probably wouldn't think that that was a critical thing to learn or to do, spend time on. If I only had one year left, I'd be probably prioritising relationships and spending time with family and and so on. It's a really good way to help crystallise the ideals. The second part of it then is to look at their priorities. So again, we make it really concrete by asking them to think firstly about time and then about priorities. So with time, we say take a typical week and just do a mental movie and estimate how much time you spent at different activities and we give them a bit of a prompt list. And then with money, look at your typical expenditure in a month. So again, really kind of concrete. What typically happens is that things that we don't even count as an activity, like grooming, for example, we get up, we have a shower, get dressed, blow dry the hair, put the makeup on or whatever it is, a lot of time can get lost in that and it's happening every day and we don't even think of it as an activity or that's something we have choices about. So that's a really good thing to just attend to and make some conscious choices about it. And then the third step is just a bit of a review. So we get them to look at it when there's a mismatch between ideals and priorities. That would be bring to light cognitive dissonance. So if I've said that it's an ideal, my ideal is that I would spend prioritised prayer in my life and I actually look at my time and I say I'm not doing that much prayer or that I want to be generous with my money but all I've done in a whole month is give five bucks to the homeless guy in the corner there's a I guess a wake-up call around I haven't actioned these these I've said these are important but I'm not actioning them I have an ideal for fitness and health if you looked at my diary you'd find I spend many more hours in in a week watching television than I do Mm. actually exercising so you know what's my priority relaxing and switching off at the end of the day what's my ideal getting out and exercising complete Mm disconnect and you know, we, we all have that you know when it was how we spend our money you know how we spend our time and you know the resources we have really are time and money mm-hmm. um and you know frankly money is just another form of time and so looking at the reality versus what we think 
is important. There's a great saying, worry not that your children won't listen to what you say, worry more that they will watch what you do. In other words, it's where it's our actions, our where we spend our resources, where we spend our time. That tells us what our real priorities are. And quite often our ideals, what we think are our ideals, are quite disconnected from our priorities. And that can lead to, again, that ambushing in our conversations because when we're, we've got this cognitive dissonance internally, something we believe is important but we're not actually actioning it in our lives, we can often tend to blame the other person. So it would be really easy for me to say, well, I would spend more time praying if you didn't demand so much from me in, in this area, X, Y, Z. Or I would I would be more generous with my money, except that the budget's always so tight because you overspend. So we tend to often project blame for our failure in our, or, in our own... Or we can't even communicate what's important to us, mm. right? I mean, the, the, the sitting in front of television for me is not that I want to watch television. I just need some space to disconnect at the end of a really crushed day where I'm on everybody's call. So that my real value and my real priority and therefore the is that I just need some downtime, some space. If I can't communicate that clearly to Francine, then you know as far as she's concerned, I'm just watching television and that's not that important, particularly when you see what I'm watching. So she might as well come and ask me to do something, talk to me or whatever. But that, actually, never, that never happens. That would never happen. <laughs> um, but if I don't realise what's going on, then I can't actually explain that. And, and therefore, you get into all sorts of messes where you actually don't even really know yourself, yet alone you know, know the other. Which brings us back to that whole disciplined thinking and reflecting and journaling and how valuable that can be. So this is just part of an exercise, a structured exercise for journaling. And there's a few other parts for them to go through reviewing it, including areas they want to change in their life, areas they'd like to see changed in their partner, and then how open they are to the influence of the other person. We get them to, to reflect on that. But what about you, Laura? Have you got an example of this area, this topic? Yeah, I think a mismatch between our ideals and priorities was as we became young professionals and we were married and got a full-time salary, each of us, you're a teenager, you get a second-hand car that's beaten up. And I was always taught, you know, buy secondhand cars. It's a depreciating asset. And I was a youth minister. I worked in the church. So it wasn't really a high priority for me to have a nice car. Whereas Joe was in the professional corporate industry. Occasionally, you'd have to pick up people from the airport, from other countries and show them around Sydney. So it was important for him to have a reliable nice car that looked good and looked the part of the professional working man. So it was just very hard for me to get over that and go, that's a lot of money to spend on a car and it's a brand new car. It was difficult. And even like now the maintenance, as soon as it hits 100,000 kilometres or six months, we've got to take it in to be serviced. And I'm like, it's hundreds of dollars and there was nothing even wrong with it. <laughs> you know, there wasn't making clunking sounds or so I had to respect Joe's. The, the check engine light hasn't been on for six yeah. months. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I just had to look at, well, what's Joe's priority and value? I see that rather than being in the disagreement, I could see the value behind that. And look, it is nice to have a good reliable car at the end of the day but that's just an example for us where I had to it was a bit of a mismatch we found that's happened for us in lots of areas we started out with very low I guess expectations around lifestyle and living and you know we had a lot of borrowed furniture when we started out um, whereas now we kind of you know we really do like having our own furniture we like new stuff so um I think that's probably a pretty common trend for most couples yes I think so that was great to unpack that topic and I think we'll unpack it more after the break 
It is easy to get discouraged when there is disconnection in our marriage. Arguments over petty incidents, too busy to romance each other, crowded with other responsibilities. All marriages go through periods where we need a breakthrough in our relationship. The Smart Loving Breakthrough course will teach you how arguments happen, how to manage them better or avoid them altogether. Understand your internal drivers and how your spouse is triggering you. Process the pain of past injuries, making you stronger and less reactive. Visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough. The Smart Loving Breakthrough course can be done by a couple or by an individual who is in a marriage that is in distress. Visit smartloving.org forward slash breakthrough to enroll today. Gift certificates are also available should you want to purchase the course for a friend or family member. Welcome back. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about managing our differences and looking at how differences are normal and then exploring ways that we can manage the differences in our relationships so that they don't blow up into a major conflict. Now we'd like to talk about decision-making because this is a really pointy end, I suppose, of where our differences can often come into contact. We're making individual decisions all the time. From the moment the alarm clock goes off in the morning, I have to make a decision, am I going to hit the snooze button or am I going to get out of bed? And then it's what will I wear, what am I going to eat for breakfast, what am I going to do first on my task list? Those decisions are coming at us all day, every day. And we're using strategies, even if we don't give a lot of thought to it, to arrive at those decisions. That's decision-making as an individual. But decision-making as a couple is much more complicated. To start with, there's two views to accommodate, and so the dynamic is necessarily going to be much more complex. Some common strategies that we see couples using um, or individuals within the couple relationship is firstly an analytical, kind of doing the pros and cons, researching it, getting all the facts about it, and then uh, perhaps even possibly drawing up a list of pros and cons of each choice. Yeah, another one you might see is you could describe as deference. I mean, a good example of that is a parent dealing with a demanding child or somebody, you know, to your parents where you sort of, you know, in deference to them, you you accept to do what they want to do. You don't necessarily want to, but it's you do it out of generosity or out of care or, or some reason like that. Or it could be between a husband and wife as well. Another common strategy is almost an indecision or avoidance. Uh, and this can be particularly common in people who have a, a level of anxiety and prone to procrastination. The process of making the decision can be so anxiety producing that they just, you know, avoid it and keep putting it off. Yeah, another one is just to decide through confidence. One person tends to project confidence on a particular issue more than another. And so they, they have a view and they express it very strongly. And it's it's not really a, a discussion. It's a statement of what the right answer is. And it might be coming from a very well-informed place or it might be coming from a very strong feeling of just what they would like. But confidence can often be a, a real player in this Delegation is another really common strategy. So in this situation, a couple might have separate roles or areas. So where they might have, one spouse might have total control in an area and the other none, and there might be other areas where the reverse is true. So sometimes a really common pattern might be is that the husband might have kind of authority to make decisions on financial matters and the wife has authority in decisions of family, for example. That's a really common one, but it could also be reversed. Um, but that delegation can be quite effective, but it can also have some shortcomings, which we'll unpack in a little bit. A classic one is compromise. There's, I think there's good versions of compromise and bad versions of compromise. 
good versions of compromises where you you know, tend to find a middle ground that's actually mutually acceptable and meets sufficient needs of both parties. The bad ones are where you basically decide on something that neither actually is satisfied by. I mean, we've seen this in couples, for example, who you know, had families living on opposite sides of the city and they didn't know where when they first got married they lived, so they lived right in the middle which meant they both travelled great distances to anywhere rather than actually... So it was a compromise, but it was a really dumb one because actually it just it cost them dearly, both in sort of petrol and time, but also in just the stress that that bore out. Every time they got in the car on a Sunday, somebody knew that they had made a bad decision. So usually both of them. A really common strategy that couples use is the strongest emotion. So they'll just go with, well, you feel stronger about it than I do, so I guess we'll just do what you want to do. The danger of this is that the more emotional person, and sometimes there's one person more emotional, more expressive in the relationship, the danger is that person can really come to dominate the decisions of the couple. And it's also sometimes emotions are not the best foundation on which to make a decision. Sometimes we actually need a really strong, rational, logical foundation to making a decision. So there's a little bit of a downside to going with the strongest emotion. Another one is I guess, can be characterised as dominance. And so, you know, somebody either through through intellect or just self-confidence projects, and we talked about confidence earlier, so it's another version of that, but it's sort of a domineering type version of decision where it's actually not a discussion. The decision's been made and it's an announcement. There's a pretense of discussion, but there's no real genuine exploration of an idea. A decision gets made at the end of it, but the decision was actually made at the beginning of it. <laughs> Um, And another one is win-lose. So couples might sort of take turns when there's kind of a regular thing that they don't really agree on. Perhaps it's around deciding what movie they're going to watch on a Friday night or where they're going to go for dinner. They'll take a, well, I'll I'll choose this time and you can choose next time. It's a version of a win-lose and that can work okay. Done the right way, it's actually fine. If it's done in the sense of I give you the decision, knowing and trusting that you know what my preferences are and we'll take those into account, then that's not necessarily a bad thing but if it's basically we can't agree so tonight you get to pick and I'll be grumpy and I'll be you know and I'll put up with it and then the next time you get to pick and you sort of you can end up in a really bad place like that yeah and it can it can lend itself to a bit of point scoring so it's just a little bit it's 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 not terrible but it's perhaps not the best way to go and particularly has some shortcomings when we're talking about major decisions of course if you have win-lose you've got to have win-win and everybody wants to have a win-win. It's not as easy as it sounds in the sense of I don't feel like Chinese and want Italian and you don't feel like Italian and you want Chinese. There's no win-win in that. Let's go tie. That's not a win-win. So sometimes a win-win is not possible. If the mindset is let's find something that actually we, we both will enjoy, even if it's not our first preference, then that could be called a win-win. It's not technically the win-win I got my first preference, but we got something that we could actually that was workable for us mm-hmm. nobody lost that's a good strategy to try and to work from so laura what about you what decision making strategies do you use we found most of our disagreements when we were engaged and getting ready for the wedding and the big day and the liturgy and organizing the party afterwards so what we found we were best at was delegation we're both quite type a personalities we want to do it our way so we delegated and conquered that way you do that job i'll do the excel spreadsheet list and do the invitations you book the limo that actually works well for us for the majority of the time it was interesting when you were listing all the other options where it didn't work for us was for really big decisions and one was when we were buying a house 
we had lots of disagreements over that. Cultural differences as well. Joe had come out of America, global financial crisis. He saw houses go from, you know, worth half a million dollars to worth nothing. And here I was in a Sydney market wanting to spend half a million dollars on a house that needed total renovation. <laughs> so there was big cultural differences there. So for us in that delegation was would have been a terrible way to make that decision. So we then went to analytical decision-making. So researching the pros and cons, looking at our finances, looking at what the Sydney market had done, looking at the suburb and what was going on in the area. So it helped us come to the decision of what we wanted to purchase as a couple. Delegation is our primary mode, and but for major decisions where we need to be on the same page, it makes sense to do the analytical and, and look at the data. And I think that's the point. Some strategies are suited to some situations, but we don't have to be locked in and do making decisions that way all the time. And sometimes having a bit of a smorgasbord, some options is really helpful. Yes. Generally, we'd say, though, when what we'd like to turn our attention to is another decision-making strategy that we haven't yet discussed. And if you like, it's kind of a win-win-win. And it's a much better way for couples, particularly when we're looking at a major topic or a major decision. And win-win-win is there because there are actually three identities in the marriage. There's the husband and there's the wife and there's the marriage itself. And so the win-win-win or what we call values-based decision-making is really a way of trying to give a voice to the interests of the marriage so that we're not just negotiating for an individual outcome, we're actually trying to find something that is going to be the best possible solution for our marriage. Behind every decision or behaviour, a priority is a value. And a value is something we hold in high regard and is supported in some way by the choice that we're putting forward. Anytime we're having an argument, it's usually a sign that our values are conflicting at some level. A really concrete topic for engaged couples is, like you said, Laura, about around the wedding plans. That's often the place where we get them to apply at the values-based decision-making protocol. Housework is really good for married couples. Again, lots of conflict around there, but you can get some really good defined topics that they can apply the kind of their values-based decision-making framework. And basically the principle of it is, is we just get couples to focus on the values underlying their preferences and perspectives. So instead of talking about what they want to do specifically, we get them to think about why is it important that it be done this way. My example of before of watching television, I would like to watch some television, not because there's a show I want to watch. I actually just, it's an, an easy mechanism for me to just quietly sit. I drift in and out. It distracts. There's a bit of background noise. Sometimes I pick something up and start reading it while I'm watching. So what I really value is just some quiet time alone, thinking or doing whatever I want. It's not I want to watch television. So if you get to the underlying value then you can actually have a real conversation about, well, what are other, what's another way of doing that? Or if that's what he's really doing, I can honour that, even if I want to decide to do something differently at this time. Yeah. So once we are able to articulate our values that are behind our preference for making the decision, we can communicate that to each other and we can always choose to honour that value. By definition, a value is a positive thing. So... I can appreciate and value and honour that Byron needs decompression time and time to re just revive and recreate. And as an introvert, I can honour the fact that he needs to do that by himself because engaging in an intimate conversation is actually going to deplete him more. It's not going to 
top up the, the empty tank. So I can embrace that and then we can look at solutions, we can brainstorm around, well, how do we manage this time in the evening where we've been apart all day but we're sort of needing a little bit of time together? How do we solve for that? And we can find one that best advances our unity. So that's the kind of the trump card, if you like, of all the different ways that we might solve this for our individual values. We then look at the unity of the marriage as being the primary thing that needs to be on it. So, Laura, you're familiar with this framework. Have you got an example that you can share? Yes, so similar to your example, Byron, for me, I do always put professional work or learning in terms of my career above housework. So it's more rewarding for me to do that, to to watch a video upskilling in marketing or something like that gives me creative energy for the next day. Whether Joe's influence on me in marriage and his priority of having a really organised home and a clean car has helped me make this more of a priority. And like, let's face it, it's lovely to, you know, come into a bedroom with the bed made and vacuumed. So I I like that and I value his value, but I don't like being the one to reset or spending my extracurricular time doing that. So we're both pretty good at delegating and having our house tasks and chores and getting it done. And look, if I do have a big work event or something like that, I know that work life will take over in a particular month. I'll make sure I get some extra help or outsource, you know, my chores so that I can value Joe's priority. So it's a really good conclusion that you're both feeling like you're equal in the partnership and it's a solution that you can both get behind because both values are being met and uh, you don't, you're not making any compromises, you're actually swinging together as a unit. And that's exactly. the whole principle of a value-based decision-making. It's to help not just find the common ground but find the solution that's going to draw us together as a couple in the most effective way. I, I think another great one that people would quickly resonate with where this plays out very effectively and obviously is is planning a holiday. When you plan a holiday, it's a big thing. There's a whole lot of things you could do. Each of you are going to be sufficiently different where you'll have slightly different preferences, even if you want to go to the same sort of place. It'll be this place or that place or whatever. That's a great example of the values playing out behind it, including how much money we're spending, what time of year we're going, who's coming with us and who's not coming with us. I think that if, you, if you're trying to get your head around this one, think about planning a holiday together and then next time you're doing one, spend time thinking about the values behind the surface decisions you're having and see if it's actually easier because I guarantee it will be to actually solve the problems you're trying to solve when you understand the values of each other because yeah. usually the values are not that dissimilar. That's why you're married. The, the core values are actually quite similar. The expressions of them, can be quite different. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand the core values, you can actually waste a lot of time and energy trying to find your way to them. Let's take a break there before we come back with some practical take-home for our listeners. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations on Radio Maria Australia. We've been talking about managing differences and making couple decisions. Now we want to turn our attention to differences that relate to our faith. I, I think, Laura, on this one, even when we share, like Francine and I do the same religion and we have you know, the same values in that religion, we, we go to mass and we pray together, etc. we have very different spiritualities. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you share all that together or you're actually of different faiths or you're struggling in your faith or you one of us has no faith. We have spirituality. And I think the first thing to do is not to leave that out of our decision-making. I think the other thing that people forget is when you're in decision-making, particularly if it's in difficult and important decision-making, invite God into the decision-making process. 
privately yourself, but also even together. We often pray for pray together over, you know, for wisdom, mm. for discernment, for serenity when we're making complex decisions. And over the course of our lifetime, there are big decisions we make and some of them, you know, with big ramifications. So I think not to forget that God is invested in our relationship and cares as much about it, the decisions we make. Of course he does. And, and therefore invite him into that process. Yes. And I think the whole process of value-based decision-making can just help couples of different faiths, particularly where there's very different backgrounds and beliefs that they can honour each other's values and they can come to a resolution and a, and a way forward that will bring their unity together rather than drive them apart. The other thing that, about faith is that is about bringing our faith into the decision-making itself. So obviously bookending with prayer, but being very mindful that we are open to the influence of the Holy Spirit in this discussion that we're having when we're making an important decision. And that's part of, I guess, the tradition in the Christian faith around discernment. Discernment is the simplest description I can give it. It's decision-making led by the Holy Spirit. So it's a, a way of working a way towards what God wants for us in terms of coming to a decision of what to do by being very much led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so we can use that as part of our values-based decision-making framework. And, of course, that's basically what our take-home is for this week is the values-based decision-making framework. And so basically what it is, it's a process for making important couple decisions. It works by focusing on the values behind our preferences rather than the details of what we want. The reason it works is because both spouses' values are honoured. So the buy-in is really strong. And also the marital unity is prioritised as, as the key factor of the key influence in terms of the final choice that's made. We'll put details up on the website for those who want to explore that a little bit more. But Laura, what's your thoughts? How do you apply this and what's the impact? Yeah, values-based decision-making for us has helped us in our relationship and acknowledging the other's value. So in our case, I have an example. When we were first married, I was involved in youth ministry at our local parish. So Joe was on that journey with me ministering as a couple running the youth group. And for Joe, uh, at the end of a long day, the last thing he needed, like Byron, he needed some decompression time. It was not relaxing for him to be have dodgeballs thrown at him and teenagers hanging off his neck. And they, they just loved him because he was a big American guy and had an accent. So I had to listen to his need and value to need some relaxing time. And we ended up changing our ministry and how we serve together, working with engaged couples and becoming a sponsor couple, which honoured both of our want, a desire to serve and to minister, but it honoured Joe's value and need to relax on a Friday night. <laughs> so that's a really good example of, yeah, values-based decision-making where we, we shifted a decision in terms of how we, how we served our community. Fantastic. That's very helpful. Thanks, Laura. I think it's time for us to take a quick break and we'll be back to do the Smart Loving Q&A. Hi there, friends. This is Radio Maria Australia and it's time for Smart Loving Q&A. We get questions every day from wives, husbands and couples from all around the world. So, Laura, what have you got for us today? We have a question today from a wife who shares that her husband has essentially abandoned his faith, leaving her to raise the children in the faith. They are both Catholic and there was an expectation from her mother-in-law that by her son marrying a Catholic, the responsibility for holding him to the faith could be passed to her, that, that is the wife. She's feeling disillusioned and betrayed by what's happened. Byron, as the guest, I'd like to throw this question to you and get your opinion on 
how to approach it. Thanks, Laura. That, that's actually, look, there's, there's a lot in that. And I don't know if the, the, the person who asked that question is listening, but, you know, obviously they're carrying a real sort of sense of heartache at, at a number of levels there. One is actually having to raise the children in the faith by herself. The second is feeling abandoned by her husband in that task. And the third is carrying the burden of some expectations from a mother-in-law that it's her job to actually keep her husband connected to the faith. So, you know, talk about a triple whammy. So, and and I, we know nothing of the situation, so I, I can't, you know, we can't talk specifically or pass judgment or give specific advice, but I'd make a couple of comments. Firstly, as husband and wife, we have a, a natural duty and interest to encourage each other in each other's faith journey, but we don't have a responsibility to each other for each other's faith journey. It's our relationship with God, and we can't, so we want to nurture that and encourage it and support it, but we can't take responsibility for it if we want to, nor can we be expected to take responsibility for it from somebody else. So that, you know, an expectation like that is not just unreasonable, it's impossible. It's- if I could just clarify around that, when you say responsibility, I think you're saying we have to respect the freedom of the other person, that it's an individual decision to pursue the Lord. And so the respect for the individual's freedom has to come first and we can encourage it and we can do everything that we can to be a good example but we shouldn't be thinking that it's it's my job to make sure he gets to heaven that's actually my job to make sure i get to heaven and to do what i can to support him in his journey absolutely knowing that or accepting that or coming to terms with that dimension may relieve some of the burden that's clearly being felt from that i think this the second thing and the really challenging thing for the individual here is that there's a gap in the relationship. There's something missing in the relationship between husband and wife, and that needs to be addressed. And again, we don't know the circumstances. That may take years to unpack. And the question is, how do you, and I'm speaking, I guess, to to the wife, how do you lean into that and be open and encouraging, but at the same time, not being actually unintentionally driving the person further away as you seek what you are obviously hungry for, but here's the most important part. It may never resolve. You may live with this for the rest of your life. The question is, what do you do with those feelings? Yeah, How do you process those feelings and how do you work forward from that situation? Because the danger is if you stay in a situation of feeling hurt and betrayed, and you are hurt and betrayed, but if you operate out of unprocessed set of feelings like this, then completely unintentionally your children's experience of being raised in the faith is going to be one in the context of a disconnected relationship that you have and it's going to be expressed no matter how hard you try, it's going to be expressed in a way that won't be actually conducive to their faith journey. Now I say that not to add a further burden but rather your desire to raise your children in the faith, you need to find a way to process this such that you are free from those other burdens. Otherwise it'll be always done from a dis, from a disconnected or a dysfunctional space. So there's a lot in that. One of the things that I think we often forget is that marriage is sometimes going to be challenging. There's going to be disappointments and we can't always avoid those and nor should we because those are the invitations and the opportunities that the law provides for us to grow deeper in our own faith. And one of the ways we can turn some of the heartache that we experience in our marriage to good and to grace is by leaning in harder on the Lord. And so I encourage our listener to really take this to prayer and to rely on the Lord to just comfort her and lead her, do what work is necessary to find some healing and some resolution for some of the pain and the hurt, but also to just be at peace that sometimes 
you know, our marriages are not going to be perfect this side of heaven. We just have to be a patient and at peace that it might be not until the next life that we experience the fullness of our marital unity. Yeah, and as you were both speaking, I was just like reminded a marriage is supposed to be a visible sign, a sacrament's a visible sign of God's love. So through this lady loving her husband, even though he has rejected his faith, she can show him God's love through the way she is responding. And as Byron was saying, what does she do with that disillusionment and that betrayal, that those feelings? How does, when we betray God, how does he respond? He just continues to love us and to call us to himself. That gentle invitation that's always there, but not a demand. And that's the subtlety of it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The, the both scary and also the reassuring reality is the strongest experience the children will have in being raised in the faith will be how a person in that situation actually deals with their dynamic and their situation with their spouse. That goes back to what I said earlier, worry not that your children will listen to what you say, worry more that they will watch what you do. Our faith is grounded in basically being a servant of love and that's not a doormat, that's not somebody else's go-to person, it's not taking on responsibilities that we don't have any obligation to deliver, but rather working how to generously respond to the situation in front of us. Yeah. Thanks, Byron and Fran, for your response to that question. If you've got questions for us, you can contact us via the Radio Maria website or visit smartloving.org forward slash conversations. Before we sign off for this Smart Loving Conversations, we want to share our blessings with you. This is the part where we share something that we've recently discovered or found um, with our listeners. So Fran, what was your bless you for this podcast? I just want to share about Kath Family, which is a website that's like a database of um, family-friendly activities, prayers, recipes, little rituals and information. And one of the activities that on there is a gingerbread nativity. It was just a really sweet and novel way of taking a regular Christmas tradition but bringing a faith twist to it. But there's lots of other things there. For 2023, Cap Kids Resource is going to be available. And we obviously believe strongly in it because we're one of the contributors. Actually, we've come across a Catholic publishing initiative in Australia called Veritatis Publishing. And I'm not sure if any of our listeners have tried to buy a, a good resource or a book or a, any sort of resource, audio, visual, et cetera, that is, you know, a Catholic faith resource. And you end up having to buy it offshore. And, and it might cost a little bit US dollars, et cetera, but then the shipping costs 10 times as much and it may not arrive and you don't know whether you can get it to Australia. You eventually just give up. Well, they've built a catalogue of thousands of some of the best published products available in the world and they're holding them on shore they get to our house within two days when we buy it. The shipping's cheap. Uh, I think it's just a, it's a godsend to the Australian church. Wonderful. Well, my bless you for this podcast is, as I said, we're recording during Advent. So if you're looking for gifts, cards, aid to the church in need Australia, you can offer a mass for a loved one or purchase a Christmas gift for them. Even your Christmas and Easter cards, I'd encourage you don't buy them from the big commercial shops. Get them from a charity like Aid to the Church in Need that supports some great initiatives in the church. So that brings us to the end of our time together. You can find more information, including links to our blessings, show notes and more at smartloving.org slash conversations that's www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations we're francine parola and laura Kane. with special thanks to our guest and my husband byron and we pray that you will be blessed in your walk with the lord today and we lift you up and all your intentions to our patron saints our lady undoer of knots pray for us saint john paul ii pray for us 
This is Radio Maria Australia. Goodbye.